Okay, what do you say, Craig? You can't stop me. I don't want to stop you, Edwin. I just like, I, for your own benefit, I'd love to see you gain a little more empathy. Yeah, but look, look, look what it says right here. Look what it is. Incinerama. Ultra Panavision Technicolor. Let's do photos. Edwin, look at this. It says Edwin Edwin is a little bitch. <laughs> that is, that's Scribbles. That's Scribbles, Connor. No, it says Edwin is a little bitch, so. No, it's funny. It's funny how that says that. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. It is Secret Movie Club Podcast 103. Today, we're talking about long-form storytelling in cinema, by which we're defining series and movies that span more than a decade. Let's put that as the definition. And really, at this point, interestingly, that includes a lot now, as everybody knows that over the last 10 or 20 years, Disney basically gobbled up every franchise that it could, which from a business perspective was brilliant. But that now could be Star Wars, could be Indiana Jones, but it can also be art house things like Twin Peaks or Lars von Trier's The Kingdom. It can be anime like Hideo Anno's Evangelion. We just did the Rebuild series, which itself was based on the TV series, but even the Rebuild series now spans two decades or like 14 years, actually 15 years to be exact. And it can be documentaries like Michael Apted's Seven Up series. And now Mr. Apted has passed away, which he knew he would. They were preparing for it across the last few. And it's going to continue beyond even. And he wasn't even the original director on the first one. He took over the series with, I think the second one's called Seven and Seven. It's the only one not called Up. But the Up series is incredible. We'll talk about it all. Uh, who is with us today? Oh, hey, it's Daniel. Hey, it's Carl Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. <sighs> Hello, America. Um, Tuesday. There we go. Edwin just made another shirt for us. And I am Craig, the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. It is wonderful to have you guys. This week, we are all, everybody on this podcast is going to be in Palm Springs. Daniel was letting me know it's 100 degrees. Edwin, in typical Edwin Cesar Gomez style, said, hey, I want to do this. But instead of asking me, hey, what can I do to help? How can I make this a success? How can I help Secret Movie Club grow? Edwin's only question was, where is my hotel and will there be a pool? Which he asked me repeatedly. And yes, you are staying at a hotel with a pool. And a bar too. So poolside, glass of Coke. Edwin is signaling his work ethic. Connor though, really sort of helped me out by threatening to kick Edwin out in the high desert if all he did was complain on the ride over because Connor graciously is driving Edwin to and from the event. Has Edwin thanked you yet, Connor? No, we're going to discuss gas money after the podcast recording, in fact. Maybe some (laughs) stories are going to be told. Maybe it's going to be fear and loathing in Palm Springs. We don't know. But what we do know is Friday, even as you hear this, be spontaneous. Just get in the car and come out. Friday night, we're doing 2001 and 70 millimeter at the Camelot. Saturday night, Sony is giving us their best print. Sony being Columbia, they're giving us their best 70 millimeter print of one of the greatest movies of all time. I mean, 2001 is in my top 10. So like two of the movies we're showing are all timers. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And then on Sunday, another amazing movie also shot on Native 70, the original West Side Story. And I finally got to see West Side Story. So that'll be in the pop culture. I can finally talk to you guys about it. Spielberg's 2021 remake. Our tech, Roger Adams, went out to the Camelot. He got everything ready. It is a wraparound screen. It is a 500-seat house. The DTS works. He filed the aperture plate so that the image goes all the way to the edge of the curved screen. 
I mean, nice. we just hope you guys have a great time. And then Friday night, we are going to have an after party at the Saguaro Hotel. And once you buy the after party ticket, basically, if you buy an after party ticket, you just show up at the after party. It's an open bar, free food. I mean, it's not free because you paid for it. But I think the value is it's probably cheaper than if you went to a restaurant in Palm Springs and you get to be with movie people and drink and eat and talk about 2001 or whatever. Maybe meet your love of your life. I'll be there. Connor's going to be there. I'll be by a pool. My dad's going to be there. You don't think my dad's opinion matters? Don't f***ing come then. Come on down to the Camelot Theater in Palm Springs. And Saturday, Lawrence of Arabia on 70 millimeter. And then that night, the after party is at Palm Springs' famous haunt, Seymour's. We again own it that night. And again, if you buy the after party ticket, open bar, food, late night bites, there's outdoors, everything. We're going to have a music mix, man. You can dance, you can talk. You're going to be with like-minded people who love cinema. It's going off. And then Sunday is West Side Story on 70, and you can go vintage shopping and brunch it, and then just come join us. And then uh, next Wednesday, our John Ford series picks up again with a movie I love, a Ford I love. Everyone, when they talk about they were expendable, it's John Ford's one World War II narrative movie about the Navy in the Philippines. Donna Reed, John Wayne, Robert Montgomery. Everybody talks about it being one of his great ones, but it's not one that you hear in the same conversation with How Green Was My Valley Stagecoach, Grapes of Wrath, you know, The Searchers, but it's amazing. So that's 35 on Wednesday. And then Thursday, we are doing uh, the Ponte Corvo movie, The Battle of Algiers on 35 millimeter, which kicks off our The Politics and the Personal series. If you've never seen Battle of Algiers, it is an incredibly complex, insightful movie about the French-Algerian conflict. And it predicted almost everything that happened to us in the war on terror after 9-11. It's pretty fascinating to see that this issue of what happens when a country goes into another country under the auspices that it's putting down terror? Well, you're going to get a counter-revolution, and then you're going to get counter-terrorism, and then it's going to be a snake swallowing its own tail, and how many people have to die before everybody's like, hey, maybe we got to do this differently because nothing is changing. It's not screechingly political in terms of one side or the other. It actually shows you the legitimate concerns of both sides, although I think in the end its point of view is probably rightfully, like, don't occupy other countries. Uh, what do you think you're going to get out of it? But anyway, judge for yourself. See that. Also, just remember, at the end of May, Memorial Day weekend at the Million Dollar Theater, we are doing all three Lord of the Rings movies all day on 35 millimeter. And then because the Million Dollar is right next door to Grand Central Market, we have hour-long breaks so you can go get lunch, bring drinks in. It's going to be epic. We start going to Mordor at 10 in the morning. And uh, whether we succeed or not, we find out by about 1 a.m. To this day, no 35 was ever struck of the extended return of the king. That doesn't exist. So we're actually seeing if we can make that happen. As every day ticks off, it's probably less likely that we're going to pull that off because it's a whole rights and clearance thing. And who knows if Peter Jackson wants that 35 to exist. It's just the whole thing. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com or just go to Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com, get tickets. We'd love to have you. Today, we're talking about long-form cinematic storytelling, which we define as a series or a you could expanded universe or thematically joined movies that get told across more than a decade. This can be everything from Richard Linklater's Before series, which he famously shot every nine years. And I don't know if they're psyching us out again or not, but Julie Delpy came out a month or two ago saying she wasn't doing it because the nine years are up again. But they did that last time as a fake out so that people wouldn't try to find out where they were shooting it. 
Although, you know, Ethan Hawke and Richard Linklater have also said that the trilogy sort of felt done after Before Midnight, so you never know. But it could be Star Wars, which started in 1977, and the Obi-Wan TV show comes out now in May of 2022. Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones 5 is coming out. It could be anime Evangelion, the amazing Evangelion TV series just finally finished its rebuild. Maybe 2021, we'll talk about it. It could be uh, so many things. The Zatoichi series in Japan has been going on off and on since the early 60s. Godfather series was two decades. The Blue Lagoon. The Blue Lagoon. Man, did they do a Beethoven? Toy Story? Hey, Star Trek. That's right. What? Something. I just start. Yeah, I'm doing Star Trek. I, I, I want. I want to talk. What are you saying? I'm saying Star Trek. Trek. You know, Vulcan, Shatner, Nimoy. I thought you were saying Star Trek. Let, let, let me have my thing. Let me have my thing. Start as a TV show, then running long series from the 70s through the 80s, 90s, and the millennial. I chose that because Star Wars, I gave up on it, and I prefer Star Trek a lot more. It's more key to the sci-fi, more science fiction-y. I like Star Wars more, like, it is sci-fi, but fantasy as well. I just like Star Trek a lot more because uh, it's more emotional, uh, action-packed, and uh, a lot of uh, kind of like war tactics, especially in Wrath of Khan. And I like how from every generation, we, we have the original actors until they sign off on their final movie. And then we go to the next one, which is the next generation. They had a running long series as well. And then boom, finish. And then we got the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. We also got all those Deep Space Nine movies in between, right? A bunch of Star Trek TV shows running right now. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a really long running series, too. Where were you introduced to it, Edwin? Like, where did you find it? And like, what series did you start with? I always think that Star Trek specifically has a really interesting, like, your attachment to it based on that. I started with Star Wars. I loved it, but after that Last Jedi crap happened, I was like, bye. In between, I started watching the Star Trek movies, because Chris, who goes to the New Beverly in our screenings, mentioned the Jerry Goldsmith score, and I love Jerry Goldsmith, and so I was introduced to the Star Trek movie because of Jerry Goldsmith, and from there on, i like, wow, this stuff is great. I love this so much. My... Three favorites are Rafa Khan, Voyage Home, and um, The Final Frontier. Believe it or not, I like The Final Frontier a lot now. Man, you're always staking out territory that amazes me. Like arguing that Scorpion King CGI. Here, here we go. Here we go. Now you're arguing that The Final Frontier is one of the good ones? It's the one to beat, baby. <laughs> I like Final Frontier. I think it's, it's not a bad movie. It's actually really solid for what it is. Bach I'll fights his brother as they find <laughs> God, who is like a LED TV screen. When you pitch it like that, it sounds incredible. I like it, though. Sometimes Edwin's defensive things make me want to go back and revisit them to see if maybe I was wrong. That, that, that's a series right there. It's take never a been chance the case, on, but I yeah, like uh, the idea. Yeah, you should, you should take a chance on it, Craig. <laughs> Part of your Take a Chance series, man. Do Final Frontier. The Start in the 60s and then made to a feature picture in 1979. Honestly, it took a long time to get a feature. Yeah, I know. Because, well, because Star Wars happened in, in uh, between. Well, they made they made an animated show in between. Oh, I've never seen the animated show. And they were, they were working on a second series for a long time called Phase 2, and a lot of those ideas got rolled into that original uh, motion picture. Yeah, I, I'm a big Star Trek, older Star Trek fan, especially the original series and Next Generation. A less like the long form storytelling and more just I think that world is like super 
rich. Like I would want to live in that world, at least the way it used to be depicted. Now it's just a nightmare reflection of our own nightmare world in the newer series. But like Next Generation in the original series, it always seemed really, it was like utopian. It's so funny you say that. It's almost like an adult Sesame Street. I mean, intentionally so. Gene Roddenberry conceived the series as an egalitarian, as you're saying, like a way of communicating egalitarian ideals that maybe people would be more receptive to packaged as sci-fi. I was late to Star Trek. I was I tried to get into it as a teenager. I think Enterprise was the one that was out and it just didn't connect as a big Star Wars kid. And weirdly, Abrams Star Trek redo, which is just kind of a good Star Wars movie, made me curious about it. And then I went back. I associate Star Trek with Netflix because when Netflix, when I was in college, Netflix streaming had become like, was becoming a thing. And Star Trek and I believe The Next Generation were on there. And in my dorm room, I was a binge-in. It was the first time I'd ever had that experience with any type of art. Like the idea of I'm going to watch all of this in a very short period of time. Not a good way to do things for me personally. I guess I don't, I don't follow a lot of like Star Trek fans maybe, but I, I'd be curious to see how people react because every single series seems to be a complete, like this retread of new ideas all kind of around the current state of things. Every time it, they come back to a new thing, it speaks to current issues while also being like fantastical. So they kind of get like this reset each time that's kind of fascinating because you watch like the original series versus the next generation and they feel like completely different beasts, but they make sense in the same universe of the show. And so the fact that it can sustain however many years it's been on now is kind of wild that it still feels fresh and still gets the news attention and people are still such rabid fans despite, you know, what, 900 episodes of TV and how many movies at this point? 20. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the MCU because I've done that too much. I want to talk about a couple of TV shows because I view them as kind of the same thing. We've talked about television before, but it's interesting to see the way that like shows that have a really long presence and universes that have a really long presence can kind of morph over time. We've talked about Twin Peaks, but um, I also really like uh, what they've done now over probably 15 or so years with Breaking Bad, the BBU, (laughs) as we'll call it, which is back, baby, Better Call Saul. I'm being paid by AMC to promote. But that's such a good show that has rewarded people who have kept with it, never in ways that feel fan servicey, always in ways that feel like expanding this little Albuquerque-based crime world. It's also just been interesting to see how sure-footed they've gotten after, you know, like 11 years, I guess, 11 plus years of telling stories in this universe. Um, I still probably think Breaking Bad's the better show, but it's just so wild the way like Better Call Saul will just, the most recent episode, you know, it'll open with like a several minute sequence There's no context for it, and it's just the weirdest stuff in the world, just images and people saying things, and you're like, what the hell is going on? And they've gotten so sure-footed that they'll just do that, and then they'll wait 40 minutes to give you any sort of indication as to what it means. And sometimes it's such a small thing that you could have easily seen them of cutting, but they seem to have such a good grasp on like what sort of beats are going to be interesting and move the story forward. So Breaking Bad focused on the Brian Cranston, Aaron Paul characters, and then Bob Odenkirk's character, who was a supporting character in Breaking Bad, got a spinoff, which Mm -hmm. is a very common thing. But I mean, that's now happening in movies too all the time. 
And I mean, it, even the Fast and the Furious did a spinoff Fast yeah. and the Furious. What is the difference in tone between the two shows? Like Cheers and Frasier, what's the thing? Oh, that's another good one. I have a friend who once called Cheers Frasier Origins. Um, well, half of Better Call Saul is a Saul origin. The other lead on Better Call Saul is Jonathan Banks playing his like fixer character from Breaking Bad. And that stuff is pretty similar to Breaking Bad in tone. But the character of Saul, uh, originally named Jimmy McGill, as like a criminal lawyer with criminal in quotes, kind of also a con artist. And the show's stakes are a little more personal and not as heavy violence crime ridden. A lot more manipulation. There's lots of great scenes of Jimmy. He'll he'll go and he'll have a conversation with somebody to try to convince somebody of something. And you'll be thinking for 10 minutes, you know, like they do these really extended long sequences of him trying to convince somebody to do something. And it seems for the entire time that you think, oh, this is going bad, this is going bad, this is going bad. And then at the end, you realize, oh, he did exactly what he was trying to do. But sometimes it's just as heavy. There was a, um, you know, I don't want to say too much, but a pretty recent heavy episode in the new season. And then they did the Breaking Bad movie. El Camino, which was kind of a, um, the Breaking Bad show, the last couple episodes really cones in on Brian Cranston's character and his family. And so El Camino was kind of a coda for the Aaron Paul character. And it was it was also great. I think it was um, Robert Forrester's last film. I actually remember walking out of that movie at the Vista and looking at my phone and finding out the news that he had passed. Did we see it together? Yeah, and I was fighting off a homeless person. I remember that day. You were also Breaking Bad. Less a series, because I think there's some, I think we kind of brought it up in the thing. I think stuff like the Before Trilogy is super interesting, sort of revisiting characters while waiting real time to do it. They started, I think it was 2000 or 1990, whatever, nine years apart each time. 2013, I know, was before midnight. 2004, so that means 95 then? Regardless, I think revisiting characters having waited real time is such an interesting strategy for artists and actors also artists, who are kind of get to grow and like reappraise the stuff that they've brought about in the past. I think that concept's fascinating in the form of long-term storytelling. And I guess sort of the best television can do that too, because it can sort of look at what's come before in that regard. But I think the current state of things is interesting too, because so much of big AAA stuff is all about long-form storytelling, beyond just the content that it's pulled from, but everything, every type of new thing wants a form of storytelling that it can have a name attached to that allows a branch off and is basically free advertising. I think Marvel nailed it where their stuff has a built-in audience and Star Wars has it to a degree. They've sort of restructuring to figure out their thing, but like DC's tried it. I think other franchises, like you said, Fast and Furious have tried it. There are some other things that are trying to get spinoffs that are attempting the it. The Dark Universe. Uh, the uh, That's what we should talk about, the Dark Universe, <laughs> which I don't know if you guys remember this, but Tom Cruise's The Mummy came out with that incredible IMAX trailer that had the audio wrong and had him, that incredible audio of him screaming in it. That was not him screaming. Ah! Phenomenal. But they did this publicity shoot where they announced all these spinoff movies in the universe with all these confirmed actors and none of them ever happened. And I know I remember that like, photo. You can still like Google that photo. It's oh, people. Just, yeah. Uh, is Jacqueline Hyde. Javier Bardem was someone every so often it comes back into my timeline and it makes me smile. But then stuff like I know Netflix tried it with that the Will Smith movie Bright, I think it was called. They were going to do uh, some sequels and they wanted to do some spinoffs. They like really wanted it to be this thing. But I, I don't think a lot of these ideas 
in terms of a money-making thing is they're not looking at it as like the storytelling potential. It's all about like the baked in audience potential. So when something uses it for that. I think the audience tells you if they want to go further in the story. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can reverse engineer that. I think the funny thing is it's I've been doing all this studying on social media because of we're going to be doing a bunch of expansion. And they were saying not that this is breaking news to anybody, but they were saying that Gen Z which would be maybe Edwin's generation, I think, that Gen Z is, is so attuned to advertising on social media and they so dislike it that you cannot do it mm. that way. You've got to give them organic content that's interesting to them. And if they want to find out more about you, they will. Edwin's nodding uh, in agreement on that sensibility. And so I think the thing about these expanded universes is that Nobody told David Lynch, Twin Peaks is going to be the thing you're going to be working on for 35 years of your life. I mean, he did the TV show. He totally believed it. And for some reason, the story of Laura Palmer and Dale Cooper has gripped a group of people who are hungry to know more about that. I think the same as Star Trek. But I think when you try to reverse engineer it, you go into some studio exec's office and you're like, expanded universe, baby. I think the audience is like, well, this story sucks. I, I don't really mm -hmm. care to find out what the next chapter is. It kind of reminds me of when Lost came out and was this huge hit. And then networks tried to do a bunch of shows with like mysteries at the center of them, like weird sci-fi. And none of them did well because nobody cared about any of the characters. I've, and the same thing happened in Twin Peaks. There's this show you should look up that Oliver Stone put his name on called Wild Palms. And they were all like, Wild Palms. And, you know, we, we all should have told that it was just like a Twin Peaks ripoff. And it was a miniseries or something that they were hoping. And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> the most interesting aspect of long-term storytelling is the chance to reappraise each time you come back to it. I feel like some artists take advantage of and other ones really try and stick by, like, this guiding method that works. But I think it's so interesting. Like, Twin Peaks, the 90s to Twin Peaks, the return, they feel like completely different things. But if you really watch them, they still feel cohesive in the same universe. But like from a look perspective, it feels like a different artist made it. Like his voice is still there, but he is a different human, an evolved soul behind it. And I love that that can exist that way. And it only can exist because they were made so far apart. You can tell when a creative person has a real talent for whatever the medium is, because they think, what is it that this version of the story or this medium can do well? I want to explore that. You know, what creatively or experimentally, I think when you look at Richard Linklater and Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke, because they've now, I mean, they've all written those things together and they're all contributing to them. It's what does the fact that we really all have lived in age nine more years? And what's interesting is they even bake into the Before trilogy their own stories outside the movies. So Ethan Hawke will bring in the fact that he was a writer, that he had sort of a, you know, a tumultuous relationship with Uma Thurman. Julie Delpy will acknowledge that she has a reputation for being a little high strung and a little like this or that. And then, of course, Richard Linklater is obsessed with time and cinema. And I think that David Lynch with Twin Peaks, talk about somebody who where a bet paid off. If you saw the last episode of season two of Twin Peaks in 1991 or two, whenever it was, Heather Graham shows up bloody in a dream and turns to Laura Palmer and says, write this in your diary. Or it's in the movie. I think it's mm -hmm. in the movie maybe. She says, write this in your diary. I will see you in 25 years. And at the time you're just like, that's David Lynch being Lynch. 25 years later in 2017, it happened and every Twin Peaks fan was like, what? But instead of, you know, fan servicing or whatever, David Lynch did what he wanted to do. And this is a, 
I mean, we can get into this and we'll do Twin Peaks, but people watched, I mean, almost perversely wanted to see Dale Cooper and you didn't get Dale Cooper for, I think, 16 of the 19 hours of the show, essentially. But when you did, though, I had a friend call it his hardest cinematic nut in, <laughs> in, in years. But David Lynch had stories he wanted to tell. And he just used Twin Peaks without betraying Twin Peaks. And in fact, made a meta comment on our desire to, you know, life and existence is different than what we want. And so when things happen in the series, you know, and you should see the series before you listen further, but he even addresses Dale Cooper's desire to save Laura Palmer or our desire to see Laura Palmer's story be different. And mm -hmm. then when that happens, Lynch makes an almost cosmic point that something bad's gonna happen somewhere else. You know, you have to understand that existence in the universe don't work in a fan servicey way, which was very profound. This is a big time spoiler for the return and a big time spoiler for Stephen King's The Dark Tower series, so skip ahead a little, but they both end in a similar way, in my opinion, where they both have, not the very end, but the bit right before the very end is the like the happy ending that we all want. And then they both, Lynch doesn't do it as deliberately. Stephen King literally takes you aside and says, listen, if you want a happy ending, stop reading. But then they both at the very end of those series do like a turn back and sort of go against that happy ending and give the true ending. I know you and I, Connor, have talked about this. I consider The Dark Tower one of his greatest achievements as mm. sort of up and down as it is. And I've read it all. I've read the short stories and I read mm -hmm. when the keyhole, the yeah, whole thing. Same. The Stand, It, and The Dark Tower complete. Mm -hmm. Although I think you and I have also, I'd take Wizard and Glass if you said, what's the novel? I'd say yeah. Wizard and Glass was the great one. I was so surprised how satisfying the ending of The Dark Tower was because it seems to intimate that the gunslinger Roland has made just a little progress, but on a cosmic level, but he's also made so many mistakes that that little bit of progress was actually very satisfying to me. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, he, he's going to get another shot to maybe move a little bit further. The Dark Tower one's a little, I would say, a little more hopeful than the Twin Peaks one. The Twin Peaks one. I wonder if, because people had a kind of reception of like what's going on to the end of the original series. And famously, the last line of The Return is Dale Cooper saying, what year is it? I wonder if that's a meta comment about him predicting that people are going to react the same way. For people who don't know, and like Connor said, I mean, we're in spoiler territory, so I, you just have to accept it. But uh, when you watch The Return, I can't speak for everyone, but I think we all had an expectation of what the last episode would be. And mm -hmm. Lynch does this amazing thing where he slows it down and you mm -hmm. suddenly realize, oh, this is it. Yeah. What I am watching is the end of the series. But then the last scene where they show up at Laura Palmer's house is so brilliant Lynch to me. I was so unsettled by all of it. I was like, he's done it again. Mm -hmm. Like he's somehow gone into areas beyond words about reincarnation or other places or different outcomes or Dale Cooper and the multiverse of madness. Yeah, totally. Because this whole idea was inspired by Evangelion, we would be remiss if we didn't touch on Evangelion, which was this Hideako Anno anime series from the 90s, which famously ended after 26 episodes. I was corrected by a fan in the audience, and I'm glad I was, not only because the money ran out, but also Hideako Anno is very open about his mental health issues. So the final few episodes of the series really uh, went in a direction no one expected and really leaned actually into his mental health issues from a like a, a looking at it, a mental point of view. And the, the main character, Shinji, basically uh, the whole Evangelion idea is 
There's this teenage boy, Shinji, his father runs this very shadowy organization that is fighting. We don't know if they're aliens or monsters or tech or maybe everything. And the father, Kendo, I believe, is very distant from his son, Shinji. Shinji, though, for some reason, is great at flying these Evas, which are these robots that are the only things that can really effectively fight the angels. There are other Eva pilots that Shinji befriends. He's also a teenager. There's romance. There's mental health issues. There are father-son issues. The TV series ended one way. Then Hideyako Anno tried with two next features, one called Death and Rebirth, and then one called The End of Evangelion to end it. The audience was still not satisfied. And I guess someone came to Hideyako Anno and said, look, we'll give you some money to pick Evangelion back up. He had shot some live action things, actually, some live action features. And he decided to do it. And he made the rebuild series, 1.11, 2.22, 3.33. And it just ended with what's called Thrice Upon a Time. So there are four movies. Initially, he was remaking the TV series but then famously in 3.33 especially, he went beyond the series and then it became something totally different. He totally redid, kind of like David Lynch in a way, but a totally different way, totally reimagined Evangelion and it got a completely different ending in the Shinji character and the father character, the other pilots, they all got different fates than had actually originally happened. Anybody want to comment on Evangelion? I don't really like cartoons. I love Evangelion. We go on the record, by the way. I'm totally one. And this, well, there's kind of a disconnect with like the um, assumptions around. I think sort of the, some of the stereotypes around anime and like the fan base. And Evangelion is such an interesting, genuinely an interesting starting off point for people that are trying to take a step into that culture because I think it has all the things that that art can do so well. The rebuild series is such an interesting idea in the realm of long-term storytelling to get to come back to this thing that you. It's sort of like George Lucas doing the special editions and just keeps tweaking, but he makes sure that you, your access to what came before is unavailable. These live on their own, where they are this new imagining of ideas that he wanted to do with this, now done, but you still have access to the original. And I think if you finish the films, you'll just want to go back and watch the series too to see what more you can get, which is such a cool thing. The last five years of fandom has really like shown a nasty light on a lot of big pop culture fandom things. And so it's such a cool thing to watch, at least with our regard to our screenings of them, like the passionate fan base around these and how dedicated they are in a really positive way to things. Even Galleon's so cool. One of those things that I don't really know how you replicate that in live action. They are so attuned to the art style that they're in and take advantage of it in every way, including pulling in 3D animation to make these things work. Uh, learning from people about how the rebuilds were released. They have a theatrical release, which is the 1.0. Then they have a physical media release, I believe only in Japan, that's like a 1.01. And then the American releases are the 1.11, 2.22 versions, which have been completely reworked. Someone said that every frame of the final versions that America got, basically every shot has been reframed. It's still the original art, but there are tweaks to everything. New voice recordings, new lines, tweaks to edits. Within that, you can go find three versions at least, probably more, to compare and contrast and obsess over. And I think that's really interesting in the storytelling world that you have this access, but also that you're not trying to erase what came before. I will just say for Evangelion, as someone who actually needs to watch the majority of the TV series and the original two, being much more familiar with the rebuilds because we just did them. What I was surprised by <laughs> weirdly and I but really liked was also the weird sexual tension that courses through them because Shinji, he has to live with a woman in the organization who's about 10 years his senior. 
and he's a teenager. And it, it does that anime thing, <laughs> a lot of shots from behind, where you're like, why am I, why am I seeing panties here? Oh, because it's anime. It, nevertheless, it transcends that where the women are actually much more comfortable in their sexuality than Shinji is. I thought they got a lot out of and then in the last one that just happened, and I think I was reading a lot of people felt this, and I felt the same way. Weirdly, the first hour of it is just them in this village after the third apocalypse for all intents and purposes. And it's very just naturalistic. There's no fighting the angels or Evas or anything. It's just Shinji dealing with his depression his cyborg sister that the father has created, and I'm sorry I'm blanking her name, but just wanting to be human, essentially, and learning how to be a woman. And then the type A Eva pilot who has aged and Shinji hasn't aged. I really admired that Ano. I think there's always something about going against expectation. And it's very scary because I'm sure people who are giving you all this money are like, don't go against expectation. Like, we want this thing to be a cash cow. Give us exactly what we think the audience wants. But I think creatively, you have to find creatively satisfying ways of going against expectation to keep it interesting. Uh, and I think that Ano did that in a number of ways in the rebuilds that I thought was fascinating. But it's too much to talk about right here. Pop culture and final thoughts. Who wants to go first? I'll say that I had a fun trip with my family. They visited. I'll go ahead and say we've got two more members of the Speed Racer Lovers Club because I showed them that and they really liked it. Also, John Watts left Fantastic Four and so I'm just going to put my name in the ring. Let <laughs> me make the new Fantastic Four movie. I'll go ahead and show the people watching that is two Fantastic Four posters on my, uh, my wall. The others on the call kind of test. Let me do it. Kevin Feige, you've made a lot of smart decisions and this will be the smartest you ever made. <laughs> and you can find me at twitch.tv slash connorcruise.com Watch me play D&D Tuesdays at twitch.tv slash nerdhalla. Hey, I'll back Connor up. You've always been very sincere and true in your MCU love. I think Kevin mm -hmm. Feige could do a lot worse. You're a screenwriter. You're a graduate from AFI. So, Mr. Feige, if you're a secret, secret movie club podcast listener, 10 minutes for what might end up being the greatest phase five decision you make. Huh? A lot of ventures this uh, past couple weeks. I discovered a new home. The world that we call Silver Lake. You Places. literally went into someone's home? I, I went to probably one of the greatest stores that's yet been discovered. It's called Whammy Analog Media. You're so many pregnant pauses here. And I went to the Hollywood Legion, watched one of the greatest movies of all time that should have been the Best Picture winner. Instead, I went to... Bergman's something. Persona. Shut up. Shut up. All right. Gotta thank the Legion. Gotta thank the Projectionist for playing a great movie on 35, which which is my first viewing of Liquor Speeds on 35 because I saw the others on 70mm. And I got to go in the projection booth, which was really, really cool. And then I'm going to watch Fast Times today. It's going to be dope. Wow, everyone's going Bobcat Goldthwait. I was thinking about going to that. Maybe I'll see you there. The person who's introducing it, Karina Longworth, hosts one of my favorite podcasts called uh, You Must Remember This. And if you're into Hollywood history at all, it is, it's maybe the greatest thing you'll ever lay your ears on. I saw The Northman, Robert Eggers' new flick. Great movie. Which is very good. I think Eggers has this really unique talent and this obsession with period detail that expands to his storytelling. I'm really curious to see if there's going to be some writing on this because I think the most interesting thing he's doing in his work is telling the story not through a modern lens, but I think very intentionally trying to tell a story as if it was a story told in the time period it was in, if that makes sense. Like the modern sensibilities he kind of throws to the wind in ways that 
sometimes make it feel like something's off, but I, I've kind of, the more I've thought about it, think it's very intentional. And it's dope. A lot of nudity from all genders, and Grants. it's bloody, and uh, Willem Dafoe. And then I saw The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Not my cup of tea, which kind of surprised me, except... Pedro Pascal is one of our supreme. He is so, so good. And I like the Mandalorian. Insane that they cover him up because that man's face is a gift. He is like elastic. He's got that almost like 90s Jim Carrey thing where just everything he can do with his face is, is so lovely to watch. I would agree on that review. I finally am catching up with some movies from 2021 and I got to see a West Side Story, Steven Spielberg's remake. My bullet point thing would be, I thought it was very good. My initial reaction is to put it in the upper tier of mid Spielberg. I don't know that it's quite top tier Spielberg. It's funny. It's kind of having a bridge of spies effect on me. The more I think about it, the more yeah. I'm like, Man, that cinema was Same. so good. You know, he does this great thing in their apartment where he has these colored silks so that he can get shadows and he can, in Maria's apartment that she shares with her brother Bernardo and with uh, Nita, the cinema as it goes along. He, like Spielberg's at a level, I don't know what you would call it. It's not old man cinema because it's beautiful and gorgeous, but he no longer cares about showing off in the way that younger people would care about. But... He's so good at what he does that you just sit there and you watch it. You're like, man, the colors, the storytelling, the emotion, the sincerity. I, I found it all really, really good. My big criticism would be I don't think they solved the issue that's always bedeviled the show. I understand, I think, intellectually why they think when Tony kills Bernardo that uh, Maria would still be with Tony. Maybe it's just a personal subjective thing, but if someone I loved came in and said, I just killed your brother or sister, who I have grown up, I'd have issues. I couldn't get into bed with them right away. I couldn't be like, let's go away. I have very close relationships with my siblings. I think you're kink shaming. <laughs> Maybe I am. But like, there's a scene where like, literally an hour after she's found out her brother's died at the hands of the man she loves, she goes to bed with the man she loves. It would take me a little long. And that was in the original movie as well. And that was probably in the original show. And I was just hoping that they would figure out the sequencing on that or maybe have someone else kill Bernardo or have it be a little more understandable that it was self-defense. Or I, and I just think that the story is bedeviled by third act issues that I've never felt any iteration of it has fully surmounted. The same thing this time. I was like, ah, they didn't really work out the third act. It's not that it doesn't work. I mean, it works for what it is, but I, it's a story thing that I find very problematic. I'm going to wait until it's still got it, baby. I'll tell you. I, he's still, I know. He's still got it. He <laughs> all right so there you go thank you secret movie clubbers as always this weekend come out to the camelot theater in palm springs we got great movies on 70 we have got after parties we'd love to have you you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com you can get tickets at eventbrite at secretmovieclub.com we got a lot going on next episode 104 is going to be about bottle rocket wes anderson's debut feature and the 90s new wave which was actually a term that was used uh, that includes uh, quentin tarantino uh, richard linklater allison anders Paul Thomas Anderson, Alexander Payne. There were a lot of people that came up in that generation of early 90s filmmakers. They were the wave after Spike Lee, Coen Brothers, Jim Jarmusch, the 80s wave, essentially. As always, I want to thank our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz, 
who edited this episode as he does everything. I want to thank everybody on this team. I want to thank Daniel, who is making a lot happen behind the scenes as we improve our theater, among many other things. I want to thank Edwin, who is posting great content on Instagram and is wearing our shirt, which I appreciate. Thank you, Edwin. And is also just a good human being who loves me. And it's Yeah, exactly. Okay. The best. Thank you, guys. We will see you next week. Thank you, Craig. Thanks, thanks yeah, Craig. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, dude. I yeah. love you, family. Bye-bye. Love you, Martha. Love you, Craig. Love you, Tammy. Love you, Connor. I'll be poolside, baby! <laughs> <laughs>